Well, good morning. I think I've met most everybody, but if, if you haven't, we've not had a chance to meet yet. My name's Brian, and um, for some reason you wanted me to come back and preach to you again. Of course, it did take you a month to decide that you wanted me to come back as well, which I understand that part, right? <laughs> so between now and through, well, Easter Sunday. So today through Easter Sunday, we're going to do a six-part series called But God. And this comes from some of the places in Scripture where it says the phrase, But God. And today we're going to start with Genesis chapter 45, But God Plans Ahead. Next week, I'll be able to give you a uh, little PDF or print out, rather, of all the verses that use that phrase, but God. In the ESV, which is what I typically read, there are 43 verses that say, but God. And in the NIV, there are 60, I think. That was right. And you can pick which one you want. You can have either the NIV copy or the ESV copy. But if we look at Genesis chapter 45, and oh, by the way, keep your fingers nimble, and, uh, you know, wet because we're going to be flipping through the passages or through pages in your Bible, finding places a lot this morning. Okay. Because I don't want you to believe something because I said it. I want you to believe it because I showed you that's what God's word says. Right. So starting out in Genesis chapter 45, we'll begin with verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all the house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. And then let's jump down to verse 25. And so they, Joseph's brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him. Before I die. Okay. This doesn't make sense. Joseph's brothers really, really hated him. They were really upset with him. And we go back several chapters. Uh, you can, we read that whole story of how they were jealous of him because his father loved him more than he did any of the other brothers. They were jealous because Joseph got the coat of many colors, symbolizing favoritism. 
and some level of expected authority as if he was going to be the inherit the, the role of leadership in the clan. They didn't like that. They were frustrated about it. And, and, and their envy and their spite became so strong that they, that is one day as Joseph's approaching them across the fields, they look at him and said, look, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him. What, 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 what? He hasn't even said anything yet. And you're already ready to kill him before he gets to you. And then one of the brothers says, no, don't kill him. Let's just drop him in this cistern that was dry, didn't have any water in it. And so they drop him in there. And then along come the Ishmaelites on a, a trade caravan headed to Egypt, loaded up with spices and all this other stuff. And one of the brothers has this bright idea, hey, why should we just kill Joseph and have nothing but the satisfaction of his death? Let's instead sell him to these Ishmaelites as a slave and then we'll have the money plus we'll have him out of our hair. Which you, know, you have to admit, that's a pretty good plan if you don't really care about somebody. I'll just take the money and get you out of my hair. And so they do that. And then Joseph goes to Egypt as a slave. Then he ends up in the house of Potiphar. Things are going on pretty good. He ends up becoming in charge of all of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife thinks Joseph's a good-looking guy and decides she wants to have some action with Joseph. Joseph says, no, I can't do that. You're my master's wife. You're the only thing he hasn't withheld from me. Then she ends up accusing him of something and he gets thrown in prison. Then he ends up being in charge of the prison because he's so good at administering and managing things that the prison manager puts him in charge. Then these two guys come in from the Pharaoh's house that have dreams and Joseph interprets the dreams for them and then they go back. And then a year later, one of them tells him, oh, Pharaoh has this dream about these, these ears of corn and these cows coming up out of the river Nile. And so then Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh and Pharaoh decides, you're the only person who had any clue what all this means. So I'm going to put you in charge of all Egypt. And he's effectively the prime minister of Egypt, if you want to use that phrase. And so he does that. And then his brothers show up one day looking for food because of the famine that's been occurring in, in the region. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he puts them through a test to see if they've changed or if they're still the same bunch of boneheads they were when they threw him in the cistern. And they essentially, you know, pass the test and he's ready to, and he reveals himself here, right? So I, I just recounted to you what happened in Joseph's life, right? The brothers sell him, throw him in the cistern, sell him to the Ishmaelites. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of, of rape. He gets thrown in prison in Egypt. He interprets these dreams for these two guys who are supposed to say something in his favor as soon as they get out of jail, but neither one does. It's a year later when the one guy remembers what happened and Joseph interprets the dreams and tells Pharaoh that, hey, I know somebody who can interpret the dream. Well, where is he? Oh, he's in prison. Well, you can kind of, I mean, kind of be in sympathy to the, uh, to the, to the cupbearer. I mean, you tell the, tell the, tell the king, oh, I know somebody that can help you. Where is he? He's in prison. Oh, okay. Do we have another option? Is there another choice besides the guy who's in prison? Right. And then Joseph becomes the ruler. 
And then he makes this insane, ridiculous claim that in verse eight, so it was not you that sent me here, but God. How does this work? How does Joseph's brothers in their wicked, evil, spiteful, vengeful, jealous hearts do this thing of throwing him in the cistern and selling him as a slave? But it's God that did this. How does that work? This doesn't make sense. Either they did it or God did it. Human logic would say that either they did it or God did it. But human logic begins to break down and lose its way when the divine counsel of heaven is working forward a plan for his purposes that don't make sense to us in this moment. And that's part of what we see here. And the first thing that stands out from this statement of, but God sent me here is his sovereignty over all of human affairs. He is in complete control of everything that's happening. Yes, there are individual human beings acting out of their own will, but he is still able to respond to it in ways that accomplishes his purposes. And it isn't just Joseph, right? When I said that God's sovereignty over Joseph's life, I didn't say that. I said God's sovereignty over all of human life and over all of human history. So we can see this in other places in scripture too. I mean, just look at what happens with David in first Samuel chapter 23, verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Here we see, this is after David has had to run away from Saul and Saul's hunting David down like a, like a, like a, well, like a criminal. Because in Saul's mind, he is a criminal and a fugitive. And Saul goes looking for him, but God prevents Saul from finding him. Even in the times, and look, the important part about this verse 14 is because the previous 13 verses tell how the entire population of the city that he was in was ready to turn him over to Saul. He had the whole city ready to hand him over and he escapes and can hide in the wilderness and not be found by Saul. Now, I know for us, that doesn't seem hard to believe, right? I mean, just the National Forest to our west is huge, right? You could hide in there for years and no one would find you if you were very careful. So it doesn't, that's not hard for us to imagine. But the wilderness of Ziph, it's like, it's kind of like Castle Rock. Right? I mean, it's just not that big. You're... <laughs> I need to run from the law and I'm going to hide in Castle Rock. Oh, Lord, do you have another plan? Because this isn't going to work. It's just too small for you to hide there. Right? And so when we understand that, we now see how God's sovereignty over the life of David to protect him and preserve him and why the author of 1 Samuel can say that Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. And then if we look at the New Testament, we've got Peter in Acts chapter 12. 
We talked about this in the Sunday school portion earlier today from Acts chapter 5 about how God delivered them. But here in Acts chapter 12, you have Peter being rescued from prison by himself again. He's rescued for the first time in Acts chapter 5. I mean, that's just, I don't know about, I mean, I've never been in prison. Well, I mean, I have been in prison, but it was because I went there on purpose to go visit and see someone, not because I was in prison as an inmate. People get out of prison, but I've, you escape twice. How does that work? Okay, sorry, sidebar. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Uh, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread, which was part of their feast periods. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Okay, four squads of Roman soldiers. That's not four soldiers. That's four squads. Okay, that's like 40 soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring Peter out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night, very night before that next day that he was going to bring him out, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So let's get this, let's get this image in our head. He's got a chain here. And on the other side of the chain is a Roman soldier. He's got a chain here. And on the other side of that chain is a Roman soldier. And he's probably in another set of chains that are fixing his feet to the ground. Like, you know, like the chain is to a spike in the ground in a cement block. Okay. So he's, he's chained. He's not going anywhere. And then outside the individual cell is a whole century of Roman guards. So get this straight in our heads. This is what it looks like. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel that was that it was real but thought he was seeing a vision he thought he was dreaming and when they passed the first and the second guard and they came to the iron gate leading into the city it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him and when peter came to himself he said now i am sure that the lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of herod and from all the Jewish people who were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioned them to, with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, 
And he said, tell those things to the James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened or had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they were, should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. This is crazy. You're, you're, an angel causes the chains to fall apart. He gets up, he walks out without the guards waking up, without the sentries seeing this. The gate just opens by itself when he gets to it. This is all, this is insane. This is crazy. And, and it would be unbelievable except for the last part of this story where Herod wants to know what happened to Peter and none of the guards have an explanation. And so he puts them to death, which is normally what's supposed to happen if a Roman centurion or soldier allows a prisoner to escape. You have to die for doing that. But God did this, but God delivered Peter out of this so that he could do other things. And, but it wasn't just for the purpose though of of doing other things. It was also for the purpose of showing his power and his might that even the mighty Roman government could not thwart his purposes. He is completely sovereign over even that moment, even over something so powerful in that day as the Roman government. And if we, and even still, you see, we see his sovereignty in these stories of, of David and Peter and Joseph over other people's trying to do things, right? The brothers are trying to get rid of Joseph, but God has a different plan and he overpowers his, his sovereignty over Joseph's life. We see it with David, with his sovereignty over David's life, with Saul trying to kill him. And we see it in Peter's life with his sovereignty over Peter's life with Herod wanting to kill him. And that, if we just stopped there, that would be amazing. That'd be phenomenal. It'd be like, wow. Okay, this is really the God who does what he wants and no human hand can thwart him. But it gets even bigger when we turn back a couple of chapters to Acts chapter nine and read what happens to the apostle Paul, who in that day was known as Saul. Uh, Starting in verse one of chapter nine, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay. So this is the Saul who's still ready to kill people for preaching the name of Jesus, right? God's sovereign over all of human affairs. This guy is an enemy of the disciples. This is the Saul who is, he's even willing to throw women in jail simply because they say they believe in Jesus, right? And now he went on his way and he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate or drank. Now then jump down to verse 23. And many days had passed. The Jews there in Damascus plotted to kill Paul. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is crazy. You you leave Jerusalem going to Damascus, which is about a 200 mile, no, like 70 miles trip. You're going to take a 70 mile trip from Jerusalem to Damascus. And on the way there, this guy who's going there for the purpose of putting in chains anyone he finds who proclaims that they are followers of Jesus. But God just whacks him right there in the middle of the street. I mean, just bright light. Who are you? Why are you doing this? And why are you fighting me? Why are you fighting against me? And who are you? I'm Jesus. And then he gets up and he is carried into the city because he can't see no more, right? He's completely blind at this point from the, from the impact on his eyes by the bright light. And he goes in there and then Ananias comes and says, Brother Saul, receive your sight, which is that whole story of Ananias coming to see Paul is Saul is even more, is just as amazing. But now he's standing there in Damascus. He goes there to arrest people for believing in Jesus. And now he gets to Damascus. And what is he doing? He's telling people about Jesus. This is okay. This is a God who can do anything he wants to do at any time he wants to do it. He, who he really is God. I mean, if he can take Saul and in the matter of a 70 mile trip in about three minutes, turn him into one of the most powerful apostles that has ever lived writing over half of the new Testament. And the other half is partially written about him. When you look at the book of acts, you take the number of pages written. Paul is probably the most second, most important figure in the new Testament. And he started out being the guy that wanted to kill everybody who believed in Jesus. This is a pretty powerful God. This God who can do these things, I'm not going to get in his way. I'm not going to fight him. Except I do. Right? Anybody with an ounce of intelligence would know, don't fight this God. Don't fight him. But we fight him anyway, don't we? Right? I mean, sometimes it would be easier if he just said, move to Zimbabwe and preach the gospel. That would be easier than go to Castle Rock and preach the gospel. Really? Castle Rock? Are you kidding me? This Castle Rock? Don't you, you mean another Castle Rock, right? That's prettier, has got better restaurants. You mean a different Castle Rock, right? No. I mean this Castle Rock. Oh, man. I was really hoping for a better deal. We fight him all the time. But yet, even in his 
kind, even in our fighting him, his kindness to us to gently move us along is his usual and majority response. All right. And so he is, there is no one like him. There is no one like this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of creator and have heaven and earth. Um, if you want to really know how big this God is, if you want to really know how sovereign he is over all things, everything, you just need to read chapters 40 through 49 in the book of Isaiah. Over and over and over, he says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no other. I will, I will, I will. I will over and over in those 10 chapters. He, he just unequivocally slams the book on any possibility of there being any other God besides him and that he is sovereign over all things. I'll just do a few of these passages from Isaiah. So we'll start in chapter 40 of Isaiah verse six. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all is beauty like the flower of the field. The grass wither, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, so he's making the point pretty clearly here that uh, all he has to do is breathe on us and we melt. That's how powerful he is. But instead of being just this kind of God, he's a God whose word will stand forever. Then verses 28 and 31 here in chapter 40. Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So, okay. So he is this all powerful God who decides if you walk with me, you will have all the strength you need to complete the journey. Okay. And then we have chapter 41 verses two through four. Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? So here we have God is, who is this, this king who happens to be the king of Assyria? is just unstoppable because wherever the king of Assyria goes, he wins. He just flat out wins. You fight him, you lose. You go up against him, you get beaten. Nothing, no one can stop the king of Assyria from conquering the land he wants. If he wants it, it's his. There's nothing you can do to stop him. That's what this is describing. And the question is asked, who, who has given this person this much power? And the answer is there at the end of verse four. 
I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Whoo. So you decided the Assyrian king would be able to do whatever he wanted and win whatever battle he fights and conquer any people he goes up against. Yep, that's right. I did. Okay. Wait a minute. But this is a guy that doesn't worship you. He even worships the opposite of you. And you're still giving him this kind of authority. Yes, that is correct. Why? Well, you'll need to go home and read Isaiah chapter 10 to answer that question. The short answer is because he's chosen this person to be the instrument of his wrath against individuals and persons who have been deliberately disobeying him and rebelling and fighting against him for a long time. Okay. It wasn't like somebody just decided, oh, you know, I don't feel like obeying the Lord today. You know, we're talking multiple generations of disobedience by an entire group of people before he decides to send wrath like this. And verse four is important because that phrase, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he that's repeated again in chapter 48. And they serve as bookends to this section of him and his sovereignty and his power, along with his message of redemption and redeeming love. That phrase, I am the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he is the beginning bookend for this section. And it ends in chapter 48 where he repeats that phrase. Now, then we look at chapter 43. I'll just, oh, it's got too many verses. Okay, we'll do chapter 43, 1 through 13. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. That's a little crazy, but that's what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse three, for I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. In other words, he's ransoming them, the people of Israel, and there are other people paying the price because he's ransoming them and redeeming them. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you and I will say to the north, give up to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Holy cow. He's saying, I made you, and I formed you, and I created you for my glory. You will fulfill the purpose for which I have given you. Even when you are a bunch of people scattered across the globe, I will bring you back together. And I will bring you from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. And you will once again live in my land that I have given you as my chosen people. He makes this a promise. Can, is there any reason to believe that this God will keep his promise? 
Yeah, right. I mean, that's a silly rhetorical question. I mean, the verses we've covered so far just hammer away in a way that whatever he decides to do is what's going to happen. And no human hand can thwart it. Oh, let's see. Let's jump to chapter 48. Uh, Yeah, chapter 48, verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called, for I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. That's that phrase repeated again here at the end of this section, the bookend of of this big long section talking about his sovereignty over all things and his redeeming love for his people. It's also important because this phrase, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last, is repeated in the book of Revelation at the end of the scripture. It's stated at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 8, and then again at the very end of Revelation, the very end of Bible itself, in chapters 21 and 22. He says this exact phrase, I am the first and I am the last. Look, look when, when John quotes these verses, this, this, this phrase, three times in the book of Revelation, there's no question, there, there's no ambiguity here. He's specifically referring back to this phrase used in chapter 48 and chapter 41 of the book of Isaiah. And by referring specifically to those verses, he's saying that everything he's just written in the book of Revelation is ordained and promised and orchestrated by the same sovereign God we read about in chapters 41 through 49 in the book of Isaiah. That's what John is saying at the end of the book of Revelation. Look, this God is going to make it happen because he's the same God from Isaiah chapter 40 through 49. He will, there is no human hand that can thwart his hand once he has decided what he will do. And if he promises something, his promises will come true because there's no way any human hand can thwart his promise from coming to fruition. Right? Okay, that's good. Got it. You've overstated the case, Brian, for God's sovereignty over all of human affairs and over all of human history. But, right? You heard the but coming, didn't you? Before I even finished my first sentence, you heard the but coming. But you still haven't dealt with this thing about how this problem of how Joseph's brothers were doing really, really doing real evil against him and God was allowing it to happen. You haven't dealt with the problem that is right there in front of us in Genesis 45 of God and the problem of evil. Well, I'm going to semi-punt. And what I mean by semi-punting is <sighs> trying to explain, look, look, I have tried to, I've wrestled with this subject of God and, and, and evil in this real world for 20 years. And I still don't have a satisfactory answer. Right? I still don't have an answer that I am completely satisfied as closing the book, we're done with this subject. What I do have are answers to this question of God and evil that give me contentment for the moment to be satisfied with it, recognizing I'm not going to ever really get there in this life. And that's the best I can offer you this morning. 
on the problem of God and evil, the best you can hope for is to receive some answers that will give you contentment to say, okay, I don't understand it all. This isn't a fully satisfactory answer, but it's enough of an answer for that I can trust God with the rest of it until I see him in eternity. That's the best I can give you. Okay. And, and that, that answer in itself would take me two hours. I don't listen. I don't even want to stand here, sit here for two hours and listen to myself. So I know you don't want to sit here for two hours and listen to me. So here's just, I'm going to give you two things to address this question of God and evil in the world. And you'll just have to be content with those two things until we can get together for two hours to talk about it. (laughs) So if you call me and say, I want to talk about this, just recognize you're the one that wanted to sit down and talk for two hours. All right. First, God in his sovereignty over all things, God allows humans to carry out evil in their hearts as part of his plan. Now, I told you that you'd have to read Isaiah 10 by yourself when you get home, but I'm going to read just a real short part of Isaiah chapter 10 to explain this about how humans do what is truly the desire, the evil desires in their hearts, and he allows it to accomplish his plans. So Isaiah chapter 10, starting in verse five, ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Okay, so Assyria is his instrument of wrath and fury. That's what he's saying here in verse 5. Starting in verse 6, against a godless nation I send him. Oh, so that's why you're sending him to execute your wrath against the people of Israel. They've become a godless nation. Wait a minute. How did we get here? How did... How do you go from the people who were crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, who crossed the Jordan River on dry ground during the flooding season when it's twice as wide as it normally is and twice as deep? You saw what David did. You saw what God did through David and Solomon to create this phenomenal kingdom on earth. How do, you, how do we get from that to a godless nation? How do you get from there to a people that don't even believe in him anymore? I don't know. How did we get there? How did we as a culture get from Billy Graham to where we are today? Right? I mean, Billy Graham started his ministry of evangelism in the 50s. It hasn't even been a 100 years since Billy started that ministry, started that work. And here we are, what, 70 years later, 60 years later, and we're about, we're, we're kind of close to the idea of a godless nation. I mean, there's a lot of lip service to God, but there's not a lot of foot service in our culture. So against a godless nation, I send him and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil, seize plunder and tread them down like mire of the streets. This is some pretty rough language. I mean, this is some, whoo, he's going to, he's coming in and he's going to take spoil and seize plunder. I mean, this is not going to be fun. But he does not so intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few for he says. Okay, so here God has sent the king of Assyria 
to take spoil and seize plunder. Take spoil and seize plunder. But what is in the king of Assyria's heart? What is his heart's desire? It's not to do what God has sent him to do. It is to do something far more wicked than that. His desire is to go in and destroy and to annihilate entire people groups. Genocide. That's what he wants to go do. And to accomplish his purposes, he allows him to carry out this desire in his heart. Not fully. Even in this case where he's sending him out to accomplish his revenge on people, even then the Lord restrains his hand because the king of Assyria, because if we look at the Jewish history, we know in this moment that the king of Assyria does not completely wipe out the people of Israel and take them off the face of the planet. He conquers them. He causes them to become like a vassal state where they have to pay tribute to him but they still exist as a people group. He doesn't completely wipe them off the face of the earth, which is what he wants to do. And why doesn't he do that? He did it with all the other people groups that he came up against during this campaign. And the answer is, is because God said, said, no, I won't let you do this. You can, I know your desire is to completely commit genocide against all the people of Israel, but I'm not going to let you do that. And he stops him. So God allows humans to carry out evil in their hearts as part of his plan. We as, yeah, okay, we as wicked humans do what we want to do. You know, the desires in our heart is what we go out and we do. It is a burning desire in their hearts to do this evil. Sometimes God restrains them and sometimes he allows them to carry out their desires even though He may limit what they're able to do. And he does this so that he can accomplish something greater than their evil. He was out to accomplish something greater than the evil desires in Shinnecrib's heart. And therefore he allows him to do it, but he limits what he can do so that God's full purposes are later accomplished, including the redeeming part, right? When we read that part in the middle of Isaiah, about God redeeming them. He's speaking that to this group, people group who've been completely destroyed, not completely destroyed, who've been completely conquered by the king of Assyria. He's making a promise to them that as bad as it is right now, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it better. But I'm going to do this and you're going to know that I did it for you. Not because you have anything that I need, but because I love you. And out of my love for you, I'm going to make this better. The other reason that evil exists is that it serves as a contrast for good. Think of it this way. You've got God in all of his goodness is white. The most perfect white color you could possibly have. Right? And evil is the darkest blackest black dark you could possibly have. Now, if God in his goodness is standing in front of a white wall that's just as white and perfectly white as him, how much do you see? Very little, right? There's no contrast 
between him and the wall. There's no contrast to give you an image and understanding of who he is. But if he's standing in front of a solid black wall, now you see him so much more clear because of the contrast, right? You see how white he is compared to how dark the wall is. Right? We can't comprehend how good he is until we see how evil human beings can be. His goodness is, is contrasted against our evilness and the evil desires in our hearts and the evil things we see people do. That's one, those, those are the two reasons. It accomplishes, he allows the human with an evil desire to, to do what they want to do so he can accomplish his purposes. And the evil in our world serves as a contrast to show us just how good he is, how pure his love for us is compared to our less pure love for each other. Right? I mean, this is, I don't like this part. Do you know that even my best motives are corrupted with selfishness? I mean, I do something for you that's the most wonderful thing you've ever had done for you. And I'm doing it, so I say, out of my love for you. But really, I've still got a little bit of selfishness there. Maybe I think you'll like me more if I do this for you. Maybe I think you'll be indebted to me and want to do something good for me. Even my best motives are corrupted with selfishness. And the Lord God never has motives that are corrupted by selfishness. His love for us and the things he does for us out of his love is as pure as it can possibly be. So coming back to Joseph and Peter and Paul and David, all these examples that I've given you from scripture about God's sovereignty over human affairs and their lives. We, we specifically in the case of Joseph in Genesis chapter 44, we see that God has a plan and he's planned ahead of man's impulsive sinful actions, right? Joseph's brothers acted out of a sinful impulse that day in the field. But God had planned ahead of those actions to allow it to occur so that Joseph would be in Egypt and do all these amazing things that no one could have ever imagined. I mean, a Hebrew slave is going to become the prime minister of Egypt? Are you kidding me? That does come on. The Egyptians hate Hebrews. They despise them. They would never agree to one of them being the prime minister over their land and being in a, under his authority. They would never agree to that. But that's what happens. And then God gives Joseph such amazing wisdom that he's the one who plans ahead and preserves food for the seven years of famine so that not only the Egyptians have enough food to eat, he even has enough to bring his 70 plus member family from Canaan down to Egypt and provide for them for the, during the remaining five years of the famine. This is crazy. This is crazy. But yet all the while, he is planning ahead for that day. 
But there's more to God's planning ahead for the impulsive actions of humans than just getting Joseph to Egypt and preparing for the famine that's coming and preserving an entire population of people. God was planning ahead for that day that Joseph was thrown into the cistern. Because who comes along at the same moment that the brothers are considering killing Joseph? The Ishmaelites. God was planning ahead and he orchestrated events so that the Ishmaelite caravan would happen. Just so happen. I mean, isn't Joseph lucky? Joseph is so lucky that a caravan of Ishmaelites happened to just be walking by the cistern at the same moment he's laying in the bottom of it with his brothers wanting to kill him. God in his sovereignty over human affairs had planned ahead and orchestrated events so that that entire caravan came along at that exact moment. That's how much God plans ahead and cares for us. We've all seen these images from this, uh, from the conflict in Ukraine. And one that really stood out to me this week was the picture of the empty baby strollers lined up one after another on the train platform in Poland. They were left there by Polish mothers in case some Ukrainian mothers with small children fleeing Ukraine came to that train station and got off on that platform and had this small child in their arms and they would then have a stroller to put that child into and push around the city in Poland or wherever they were going as a refugee. I mean, that's like, if you're a Ukrainian refugee and you happen to pull up and get off the train in that train station in Poland, and you're a mom with a small child, you suddenly start to feel like God's opening doors for you. Because there's, I mean, there's just, it's just a stinking stroller. But if you're a refugee with nothing but a few clothes in a trash bag, that stroller seems pretty big. So when we have these but God moments, sometimes you're a Joseph and sometimes you're the Ishmaelites. Sometimes you're a martyr and sometimes you're the witness to the martyrdom. Sometimes you're the Ukrainian refugee and sometimes you're the Polish mom who leaves a stroller at the train station. My, my point is, is during a but God moment, embrace the role that God has given you. If you're a Joseph, then just go with it. If you're an Ishmaelite rescuing the Joseph from death, go with it. If you're the Ukrainian refugee, go with it. If you're the Polish mom leaving a stroller at the train station, go with it. Embrace the role God gives you in the but God moments. Now, this next piece will be really fast, much faster than the previous section about God's sovereignty over human affairs and good and evil. Joseph is also a foreshadowing of Christ for us. See, God sent Joseph ahead to be the redeemer and savior of the Egyptian people, but more specifically for the Israelite family of Jacob. And God sent Jesus ahead of our needs for being saved, right? 
before we even began to experience the famine of our souls, God sent Jesus ahead of time to be the redeemer and provider for the famine of our souls. Just as Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver, so also the Jews sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I know 20 and 30 aren't the same, but you got to count for inflation. We all know about that. Just as Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him out of spite and jealousy, so also the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus out of spite and jealousy. And just as Joseph's brothers handed him over to the Ishmaelites to go into slavery, so also the Jews handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. Joseph, as the famine savior of Egypt and Israel, is an image for us as the savior of our souls in the famine of our souls. And there's one other thing. It wasn't the Jews or the Romans that killed Jesus, but God, he killed Jesus. Colossians 2.14 Girls eat popcorn. That's how I remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Girls eat popcorn. I know we guys eat popcorn too, but there's nothing, there's no, there's no letter from Paul that starts with the letter M. Colossians 2.14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, he, meaning God, set aside nailing it to the cross. Who drove the nails in the cross? God did. Yes, there were human agents in the form of Roman soldiers driving the nails with a hammer. Yes, there were Pharisees who betrayed and or handed him over unjustified to the Romans to crucify him. Yes, Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But all of that evil that they were doing out of the wicked desires of their hearts was to accomplish God's purposes in that our sins and our record of debt against our father for our rebellion against him would be paid and nailed to the cross. They were nailing the physical arms of Jesus and the physical feet of Jesus to the cross. But in heaven, God was nailing the record of our debt to that cross. And Jesus went ahead of us to pay this price for us. <sighs> I'm unworthy of this kind of love. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rebellious person. I'm not good at obeying, especially when I don't want to. I mean, like if I want to obey, yeah, that's easy. But, but when I don't want to obey, I generally don't. Like, I like to drive fast. I very seldom, very seldom do I pay attention to the speed limit unless I know there's a someone there going to catch me. I just, I just don't, I don't obey very well. <sighs> Yet even still, in his love for us, he does this. Now is a but God moment for each one of us in this room. See, he has reconciled himself to us through Jesus' death on the cross. 
He instills the Holy Spirit in us so that we can walk in oneness with him, doing good works, which he has prepared ahead of time for us to walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. So what do you, what do you do when you have this but God moment of his provision for you right now? You just, you receive it just the same way Joseph's brothers and his father did at the end of chapter 45. You receive the gift he's giving you. You receive this reconciliation. You receive this gift of, of the spirit indwelling in us so that we can walk in oneness with him. Right? The gift of the Holy Spirit isn't about us doing miracles. It's about us walking in fellowship and intimacy with our father in heaven. That's what the purpose of the spirit is. The gifts of the spirit, the things we do because the spirit empowers us, that's gravy. That's like icing on the cake. But the cake is our fellowship with him. In this but God moment, receive that gift he's giving you. Receive it and enjoy it for all the richness and all the glory and all the joy that it gives us. My brothers and sisters, enjoy walking with him as he's given it to us. Let's pray together here. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word that shows us so clearly how you are sovereign over all things, all of human history, both past and present. And thank you for the promises that you make through us and the trust we can have in them because of your sovereignty. And thank you for your love for us. And I pray now, Father, that your spirit would just just dump on us like a July thunderstorm, covering us, soaking us, so that we can enjoy you and know what it really means to feel you, to experience, feel, and receive your pure, unperfect love. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.